Job chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Then Bildad the Shuhite. That's proof positive. He's the shortest man in the Bible. He's Shuhite. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you speak these things and the words of your mouth be like a strong wind? Does God subvert judgment? Or does the Almighty pervert justice? If your sons have sinned against him, he has cast them away for their transgression. Ouch. If you would earnestly seek God and make your supplication to the Almighty, if you were pure and upright, surely now he would awake for you and prosper your rightful dwelling place. Though your beginning was small, yet your latter end would increase abundantly. Let me bring you up at least a little bit to speed. Remember what the theme of the book of Job is. It's about suffering. Some people will expand the theme and say, well, why does a loving and a righteous God permit people to hurt or to be in pain or to be... To, to suffer. As a matter of fact, when people have been asked this question, if you could ask God any question at all, what would you ask him? Many times the question that comes up that people will ask is, well, why do people suffer? Others have suggested that the theme is really not why do people suffer, because if that's the theme, the, the, the theme is never answered. But how do we suffer? How do we respond in difficulty and pain? Job is pictured as a righteous and an upright person. Remember, he was described in the first chapter as perfect and upright. And you remember the story, Satan appears in heaven he presents himself besides the other angels. The Lord says, have you considered my servant Job? That there's none like him in all the earth, upright, perfect. And Satan, of course, does what Satan does. He accuses the brethren. He says, is there a reason why? Isn't it because you put a hedge of protection round about him? The reason why he loves you and the reason why he serves you is because you give him supernatural protection. And Satan was given permission to engage in a series of accusations and attacks. Within a few days, his family his business is gone, his family is gone, his health is gone. And at first Job is stunned and then he's perplexed. How do you understand what's happening? Friends show up to provide support and comfort. But soon they themselves become accusers. And so the friendship and comfort soon turn into a discussion about God's justice and the issue of suffering. So why do people suffer? Remember in the first series of dialogues, Eliphaz claims that God gave him a supernatural vision. He appeals to experience and subjective evaluations in order to try and explain Job's circumstances. And if 
Eliphaz is a picture of the type of person who looks for personal experience and subjective experiences to explain personal circumstances. Bildad is going to appeal to the wisdom of the past. He's going to present a number of wise sayings to support his position. If Eliphaz is a person who is basing his information and counsel on the basis of experience, Eliphaz is basing his on the basis of tradition, the accumulation of wisdom up until that time. Zophar will rebuke Job in chapter 11 and insist that that Job has to get right with God and repent. And all three make the same mistake, whether it's Eliphaz or Bildad or Zophar. They fail to enter into Job's sorrow. They fail to exercise godly sympathy and compassion. They fail because they're so certain of God's character and the way that God works that they refuse to even for a moment think that they don't know the whole story. And of course, that should be a surprising lesson to each and every one of us. That as much as we think that we know about another person's circumstance, as much as we might think about what's going on in their mind, in their heart, in their life, that we would do very, very well to be careful. Just like the New Testament says, don't be many teachers among you, knowing that we will incur the stricter judgment. Be careful and be aware that if you place yourself in the position of wise person and counselor, that you better beware. Job has, in the last chapter, appealed for sympathy. He's affirmed his integrity and his faith in God. And so Bildad, the Shuhite, shows up and makes an argument. Look what it says in verse 1. Then Bildad the Shuite answered and said, How long will you speak these things and the words of your mouth be like a strong wind? Now remember in chapter 6 and 7, Job has poured out his heart. He has appealed for sympathy and understanding in chapter 6 verses 1 through 13. He's expressed his deep disappointment in his friends. He's given a graphic description of his pain and his endless suffering in chapter 7. He's made a desperate appeal to God to remember his pain and to remember his suffering. And remember, he is a person who has talked about suicide. Because his pain is so real and so what seems like permanent that there's no way out. And after doing all of that, Bildad says, Job, why are you blowing hot air? Really? Do you think that's the right thing to say to a person in pain? Do you think that that's the right thing to say to a person whose head and heart 
and circumstances are crushed. One Bible commentator suggested that Bildad is so concerned about the justice of God that he has forgotten about the needs of his friend. And it's important that you get that right from the start. Is it important to care about the justice of God? Yes, of course it is. Is it important to have at least an ounce of sensitivity, a measure of compassion. Bildad says in verse 3, does God subvert judgment or does the Almighty pervert justice? Again, Warren Wiersbe says that Bildad will preach a sermon on justice. He will take as his text, The vision of Eliphaz that appeared in chapter 6. Remember Eliphaz says, Shall mortal man be more just than God? He's asked the question, Okay, in the grand scheme of things, Can a human being be more just than God? Does God punish the wicked? The answer is yes. Does God reward the upright? The answer is yes. What is the outline of Bildad's sermon? Well, the justice or the character of God in verses 3 through 7. Wisdom from the past in verses 8 through 10. Evidence from nature in verses 11 through 22. As a matter of fact, if I were the preacher Bildad, I would outline my sermon this way. Look up. Look back. Look around. It's a, it sounds like a pretty good sermon. It's a powerful, motivational way of looking at something, but guess what? It's a cliche. And let me tell you why. Because as, Job, as Bildad encourages Job to look up, he's asking him to look up at a God who isn't really there at least in the way that Bildad perceives him. You see, Bildad is going to encourage Job to look up, but he is going to give him misguided insights into the nature of God and the character of God. It's one thing for a person to say, look up. And it's another thing for for you to say, exactly who are you asking me to look up to? What is it that you're exactly asking me to believe in? Bildad will encourage Job to look back at the wisdom of previous generations. And finally, Bildad will say, look around, look at, he's going to use illustrations from Egyptian papyri plants and spider webs and plants that have been pulled up by the roots. They're popular proverbs and aphorisms, but they're also cliches. I mean, anybody can say, tell me something deep. Well, ooh, wow. I asked for something deep. He said, well, ooh. It's just like when I was a kid and you think that you're coming up with something clever when in fact you're not. Do you remember when you were a child and you were in catechism class or religious instruction? We happened to have a Catholic priest from Ireland. And of course, I'm going to ask the classic question. Well, now, Father O'Day, if God is so great and is so powerful, can he make a rock so big that even he can't lift it? 
Well, thank you, Mr. Drace, for that. Oh, it's like I've never been asked that before. And then, of course, he sets me straight. The real question, Mr. Geraci, isn't whether or not God can make a rock so big that even he can't lift it. The real question is, would he? And of course the answer is, no. You see, we come up with clever cliches, thinking that we are going to satisfy a real question. You see, if you've followed along in Job, and you have begun to enter into the real pain and the real suffering. A superficial or a cliche answer isn't going to cut it. In a way, is Bildad correct? Yes. Is God good? Yes. Is God just? Yes. Does Bildad have a right to say that God is just? Of course. Will God pervert justice? Of course he won't. Is he right in affirming the justice of God? Of course. But remember, he's thinking in terms of categories. Bildad is thinking, well, if Job is just, as I look at his circumstances, then that must mean that God is unjust. Or Job is unjust, and therefore God is fair, and and, and because God can't be unjust, there has to be something wrong with Job. Now, Bildad is correct in telling us that God is just, but Bildad is incorrect in the application of his theology. And we're going to see why in just a moment. You see, we can make the the same mistake. We can affirm the justice of God and then neglect his love and his mercy and his goodness. We can affirm the love of God and the mercy of God and the goodness of God and then neglect his justice. You see, so many people want to have a conversation. Well, what kind of a God is God? Is God a good God? Most people will say yes. Is God a loving God? Of course he is. Is God a merciful God? Of course he is. But is God a just God? Does the Lord see everything? You see, the only way to stay on track is to think of the attributes of God in the way that it's revealed in the Bible. How is it possible for God to be both just and the justifier? Well, the best example, of course, is in the person of Jesus Christ and the cross of Christ. It is in the life of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus and the death of Jesus where we see this incredible revelation take place. Does God and must God deal with the problem of sin? Must God deal with our iniquity? Must God deal with our rebellion? And the answer is yes. But how can God judge sin and at the same time exercise mercy and grace? And the way that God does that is in the person of Jesus. He sends Jesus to live the life and die the death that we deserve. And so we see judgment and love. Is God loving? When he judges sin, 
The answer is yes. Does God remain holy and just even when he exercises mercy? The answer is yes. You see, Bildad gives part of the message, but he leaves part of the message out. So many people come to me and they ask me about a particular Bible teacher or a particular ministry or a particular issue. And and they ask me what I think about it. And I'm so happy to to be able to talk about it. but, But again, there are so many ministries that will focus on judgment and neglect love and mercy. Paul declares that God is both just and justifier. We've just been studying the book of Romans. And a few weeks back in Romans chapter 3, do you remember what Paul wrote? In verses 24 through 26, he says... Being justified freely. I'm going to start at verse 23. For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation. Propitiation is a big word that just simply means the satisfying sacrifice in order to appease his anger towards rebellion and sin, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Paul writes, how is it possible for us to talk about judgment and talk about mercy in a single breath? The only way we can do it is we have to whisper or shout the name Jesus. And then in verse 4, look what it says. If your sins, oh, excuse me, if your sons have sinned against him, he has cast them away for their transgression. Have you ever read anything more hurtful than that? Imagine you're talking to someone whose daughter has died in a car accident. Imagine you're talking to an individual and their son and their daughter got married and on their way in their honeymoon, they're driving down the highway and a drunk driver crosses over the median and smashes into them and they fly through the windshield and they die instantly on the day of their wedding. And someone says, well, they must have done something to deserve it. Yeah, that's the right response. You should gasp. You should catch your breath. And wonder, is there any insensitivity, propriety that a person is willing to exercise if, and it's a big if, if your sons have sinned against him, he has cast them away for their transgression. Do you understand what Bildad is saying to Job who's in so much pain? Well, you know, God is just, and if they deserve to die, hey... They deserve to die. What's interesting is that the book of Job doesn't support Bildad's statement or his conclusion. 
You see, a lot of people, they read the Bible and they take it entirely out of context. They see something in the Bible and they think, well, the Bible says it, I have to do it. And so they, they play Bible roulette. Okay, God, whatever you want me to know, whatever you want me to know. And Job went, or, and Judas went and hung himself. Try something else. Go and do likewise. Oh, the Bible said so. I guess I'm going to have to do it. You have to read the text in its context. And sometimes in order to find the context, it's within the chapter. But sometimes you have to go several chapters back. And sometimes you have to read the whole book in order to understand what is being said. And as you go fast forward in the book of Job, you're going to understand something. That Bildad's conclusions are not only cruel and wicked and insensitive, but it's truly problematic. And so Bildad says in verse 5, If you would earnestly seek God and make your supplication to the Almighty, if you were pure and upright, surely now he would awake for you and prosper your rightful dwelling place. Under normal circumstances, this is a good message. Hey, seek God. Confess your sin. Turn to the Lord. But Job knows the Lord. Job has earnestly sought the Lord. Job has genuinely made supplication to the Lord. In other words, when he says, if you would earnestly seek God and make your supplication to the Almighty, if you were pure and upright, surely now he would awake from you. Remember, this is his his assumption, and this is the assumption of so many people. If you do what's right, then always what's right will happen. Is that true? Have you ever heard the expression, the road to hell is paved in good intentions? If you genuinely, with all of your heart, want to do what's right, does that mean that it will always be right? Of course the answer is no. Bildad wonders. He doesn't come right out and say it. He wonders, is Job really pure? And really upright? God has said he is. If that were true, Bildad says, then God would awake for you and prosper you and put you where you belong. Do you see why Bildad would be such a great prosperity preacher? Now, Job, if you would just give your best seed offering into Bildad's ministry... You're going to experience a wonderful return because it's the law of sowing and reaping. And is there a law of sowing and reaping? There really is. But here's the problem. Right theology, wrong application, wrong assumption is always going to lead to the wrong conclusion In verse 7 he says, though your beginning was small, yet your latter would increase abundantly. Bildad would find a comfortable home 
telling people what they want to hear. Look, if you'll just repent of your sin, if you just get right with God, if you'll just turn to God, then everything is going to turn out right. But is it really that simple? Is it as simple as the reason why you're not prospering is because there's something wrong with you and there's something wrong in your life? Well, sometimes it's a little more complicated than that. Bildad is in effect saying, if you were right with God, he would restore your wealth. He would restore your health. He would restore your fortunes. And this is the irony. The irony is that Job will pray for his friends when we come to the end of the book in Job chapter 42. Because they are in fact the ones who are not right with God. And so the Lord says, pray for your friends. And so now he's going to appeal to the wisdom from the past. Hit the the part of his message. Look in verses 8 through 10. He says, for inquire please of the former age and consider the things discovered by their fathers. This is a Hebraic expression, a poetic expression of look to the past and look to the wisdom of the past. Look at the sum and the substance of the accumulation of human knowledge and human wisdom and human understanding. Now remember, Eliphaz has based his criticism, observation on experience and subjective mysticism. Bildad is now going to base his comments on the traditions of men. We might even put it this way. He is saying... I am going to appeal to the wisdom of the past as we look to the sum and the substance of the accumulation that people have made as they've considered this question. Another way of saying it is, hey, what did the ancients say? Now let's be clear. Can we learn from the past? The answer is yes, of course we can. Again, Warren Wiersbe writes this, which I agree with, quote, Those who do not remember the past are condemned to relive it, wrote George Santayana. Many of you who have had freshman and sophomore college classes in philosophy remember the quote, Those who do not remember the past are condemned to relive it. But the past also has to have a rudder to guide you, to anchor you. He writes, how the past perishes is how the future becomes, said philosopher Alfred North Whitehead. So the past has to be a rudder to guide us, not an anchor to hold us back. Past observations might be helpful, but let's be clear. Some might be proved harmful. Let's be blunt has everything that every wise person in the past said. Is it helpful or even true? Simply because they're old doesn't mean that they're right. Again, let's be clear. Do the great thinkers of the past offer insight and wisdom? The answer is yes. Do they also offer foolishness and wishful thinking? The answer is yes, sometimes. Are the great thinkers of the past sometimes right? Yes. Are they sometimes wrong? 
So if you are appealing to someone in the past, doesn't it make sense that you evaluate what they say in light of what God said? And see, this is going to become the key concept for you to remember. The key concept for you to remember is, can people say things that are important and even helpful? Yes. But if it is inconsistent with what God says and with the revelation of God and the character of God concerning what's happening in our world, how are we to think about that? Someone wrote, what's the difference between tradition and traditionalism? I happen to know who wrote that. It was me. (laughs) But in order to find the answer to my question, historian Jaroslav Pelikan says, quote, Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Maybe some of you saw the whole uh, play uh, where the guy says, Tradition. What about tradition? We love tradition. And guess what? Are some traditions good? Yeah. Wonderful. Helpful. Connecting us with the past. But does tradition always tell us the truth about our present circumstances? Not always. Again, one Bible writer said, To Bildad, the past was a parking lot. But God wants the past to be a launching pad. We stand with the ancients so that we can walk with them and move toward the goal that they were seeking. This includes our knowledge of God as well as our knowledge of man and the world. In other words, when we look at the past and we look at the things that people in the past have said and they've asked the same questions that you ask. Why are we here? What are we doing here? How do I explain my life? Where did I come from? Where am I going? And so Bildad is right when he says, for we were born yesterday and know nothing because our days on earth are a shadow. Is it possible that the life of one person, the beginning of their life, the middle of their life, and their end of their life, if you just think of the circumstances of one person's life in comparison to every life that has ever been lived and all of the contributions that can be made, Does it make good sense to not ignore what other people have discovered? Of course it makes good sense not to ignore what they've discovered. So it is true that our knowledge and our experience and the brevity of life should cause us to evaluate what others have thought and what others have said and the legacy that they have left us. But does it become the sum and the substance that's going to direct our thinking or inform the truth? In verse 10 it says, will they not teach you and tell you and utter words from their heart? What is Bildad saying? He's saying, we should respect the wisdom of the ancients more than the observations and the evaluations of our contemporaries. Bildad's motto was, if he ain't dead, he ain't red. It's not a bad motto. But again, you're ignoring all of the contemporary thought 
and ideas. So here's the question. Can we learn from the past? Yes. Can we learn everything from the past? No. See, that's the idea. And so he will now give a series of illustrations. The destiny of the godless. It would seem that these are a series of ancient wisdoms, like I said, aphorisms, proverbs, that deal with the age-old question of observation, then cause and effect. You see something. You all know the idea that every cause, every effect has a cause. And so what they're doing is, this is what we call the law of causality or the law of cause and effect. Now, again, is there value in observation and cause and effect? Of course there is. In verse 11, it says, can the papyri grow up without a marsh? Can the reeds flourish without water? In other words, here's what he's doing. He's, you're having a picture of a river that's flooded, and there are the reeds. And once the river recedes or dries up, it's starved for water. The reed withers and dies. Bildad's conclusion is, hey, look, can the papyri grow up without a marsh? Here's what he's saying. When the water ceases, the plant dies. But he's making an application even though he isn't saying it. The application is, do you know why you're withered up and dying, Job? God's favor, God's blessing, God's water that used to wash you and provide for you and grow you. Now the water has stopped flowing and you are in this desert parched place. The the reed withers and dies. Job is withering and dying. Here's his point. The papyri reed is withering and dying. And there's a reason why. Job, you're withering and dying. There must be a reason why. We can look at the river and we can say, hey, guess what? The river has receded. And then he looks at Job and says, guess what? God's favor has left you. But is that the right conclusion? That is not the right conclusion. That's the wrong conclusion. Bildad assumes the reason Job is in the trouble that Job is in. Is that he's either a great hypocrite. Or he's a great sinner. Are either of those reasons true? None of those reasons are true. He says in verse 12. While it is yet green. And not cut down. It withers before any other plant. So are the paths of all who forget God. Here's the challenge. Is it true that everyone who forgets God, everyone who trusts themselves, everyone who relies on themselves, everyone who purposes to live their life apart from God, apart from Christ, if they do based on their own intelligence, their own resources, their own circumstances, so are the paths of all who forget God. People will trust something. They will trust God or they will trust themselves. For the person who trusts themselves, are they going to be in big trouble? Yeah. He says, and the hope of the hypocrite shall perish. It's really true. 
But remember what Bildad is thinking. That Job is the hypocrite. That Job is a make-believer. He says in verse 14, whose confidence shall be cut off and whose trust is a spider's web. So Bildad moves from the illustration of plant life to spider life. He goes from botany. Come on, Gino, you should know the scientific name for the study of insects. Entomology, thank you. You get a prize after the service. (laughs) Free muffin in the Open Door Cafe. Okay. He moves from plants to spiders. By the way, does the web of a spider offer much support? Not if you're a human being. If you're a spider, it does. See, again, it's about perspective. If you are a human being, and unless you're an angel, I just assume that most of you are human beings. If you have a spider web in your house, what do you immediately do? Some of you go, I'm going to do an evaluation on the the nature of, of how spiders act inside my house. Most of you don't do that at all. You get rid of it. You're not there to conduct a scientific investigation. Here's what he's doing. Bildad is comparing Job's confidence to the person who leans on a spider web. But did Bildad know that a spider silk comes in at least three different varieties? Some silk is sticky in order to catch its prey. Other is non-sticky so that the spider can approach its prey. Spiders have a drag line. It's a special silk that the spider uses in order to lower himself or, or herself. And, and what's really interesting to me, scientists say that a spider silk is made of a combination of crystalline and amorphous. Amorphous is just a fancy word for randomly arranged materials which combine the unique properties of wire and rubber. Under most circumstances, when you make something stronger, it becomes more brittle. But in the case of a spider's web, it becomes more flexible. In other words, the more that a spider web's resilience is tested, the more elasticity it exercises. The thread becomes stronger and more elastic. Why am I telling you all of this? Because Bildad is using an excellent illustration of how a person can flick away a cobweb, never realizing that God has made spiders and webs to do unique, wonderful things. That when you begin to understand how things work, how they really work, it will expand your perception. And perspective. This week on my radio program, someone called in and they told me about a group of atheists and agnostics that have started church services. Now, what what do you suppose atheists and agnostics do in a church service? Do you think they come in and worship God? No. You know what they do? They come in and they sing songs like... Lean on me when you're not strong. 
It's a great song. But imagine atheists, agnostics, and skeptics, they all get into a great room. They join hands, they join arms, and they, say, they celebrate their humanity. They celebrate their ability to trust themselves. Now, I, I want you to think this through. The atheist, the agnostic, and the skeptics get a sense of enjoyment in the camaraderie that comes when people gather together and worship and sing. But what's really interesting to me is what they're singing about and what they're really worshiping and what they really care about. In verse 15, it says, He leans on his house, but it does not stand. He holds it fast, but it does not endure. Verse 16, He grows green in the sun, and his branches spread out in his garden. Verse 16, who grows green in the sun? I know people are going, I have no idea what you're talking about. It's the plant. Remember, he's talking about the plant. He grows green in the sun. The plant does. Think about it for just a minute. Why do plants grow green in the sun? Who had fourth grade science? Who knew that when the sun shines, the sun's rays come down on the plant, the sun's beams through the process of photosynthesis, the, 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 the light rays are turned into chlorophyll and it turns the plant green. Now think about it. When the book of Job was written, the oldest book in the Bible, someone observed, hey, I couldn't help but noticing that sunlight prompts growth. Now, does the writer of Job, or even Bildad, understands what every fourth grader understands about light, photosynthesis, and the growth of plants? No! See, this is interesting to me. You take dirt, you take air, you take water, you take sunshine. Growth! The product is turned into edible food, textiles, fibers, clothes. Not to mention that plants allow us to breathe the air that we're breathing. The psalmist writes in Psalm 104, verse 14, He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. But think about it for just a moment. Because the atheist and the agnostic and the humanist, when they say, Hey, yeah, I know about sun and I know about photosynthesis and I know about chlorophyll and I know about why plants grow. That's great. You know why they grow. But have you ever stopped to ask yourself the question, who made the plants and, and why are they even in this universe and how do you explain the ecosystem and how do you explain the circumstances that, that we find ourselves in? Remember what Bildad is doing. He's taking something that is obvious and evident. He's using it to illustrate his sermon. And it's a wonderful sermon. It has three wonderful points. It has great illustrations. The problem is that the conclusions that he draws are all wrong. And then he uses, he goes from, one type of plant, to a spider, to another type of plant in verse 17. 
His roots wrap around the rock heap and look for a place in the stones. If he is destroyed from his place, then it will deny him saying, I haven't seen you. Behold, this is the joy of his way and out of the earth others will grow. Bildad is using the illustration of another plant. This time the plant is pulled up by its roots. Now again, if you go out and you pull up a plant by its roots and you toss it to the side, what will eventually happen? The plant dies. Is it possible that another plant will grow in the place of the one that, of, of which you pulled it up by the roots? Anyone who has a garden, anyone who has a yard, anyone who's ever pulled weeds, you can pull weeds till your heart is content. Do weeds will sometimes, do they continue to grow in the place where you continue to pull them? Yeah, you don't have to be Bildad the shoe height to figure this one out. Now, here's Bildad's argument. No one in their right mind pulls up a good plant. I want you to think this through. Here's Bildad's argument. Who in their right mind is going to pull up a good plant, a fruitful plant, a precious plant, an important plant? It doesn't make sense to kill a perfectly good tree. Even Jesus said, You'll know a person by their fruit. A good tree produces good fruit, and a bad tree produces bad fruit. Is that true? Yeah, good trees produce good fruit, bad trees produce bad fruit, but listen to, to what Bildad does. Bildad says, I, I don't understand. Job, if you're such a good person, if you're such a good plant, if you're such a fruitful plant, if you're such a perfectly good tree, why in the world would God pull you up? He says that God will pull up the weeds and cast them into the fire. Sounds like a New Testament passage, doesn't it? John the Baptist preached a very different message about pulling up things and casting them into the fire. Is it true that the godless will perish? That is true. Will the unfruitful perish? That is true. But remember, Bildad suspects that Job is a hypocrite, that Job has unconfessed sin in his heart, that Job isn't really trusting God, and compares Job's sufferings to those who have neglected God and forsaken God, abandoned God, refused to have anything to do with God. But is that really true about Job? That is really not true about Job. And so Job's sermon isn't like a cold cup of water in the midst of the desert. Bildad's sermon isn't a relief. Bildad's sermon isn't medicine. Bildad's sermon is like an arrow going into Job's heart piercing and penetrating, wounding. It's causing the pain and the suffering that he's already experiencing to become inflamed. 
You see, Bildad's points are like sharp arrows. They're designed to puncture and punish. The godless who forsake God are like a papyri reed, and they don't have water. They'll wither and die. The godless are are like those who trust in a spider's web for support. They'll stumble and fall. The godless are like the uprooted, shallow, unfruitful people, and they're going to continue to suffer and die. You know what's really interesting about those illustrations and the statement that he makes? They're all true. All of that's true. But it doesn't apply to Job. The advice sounds so noble and so righteous. But the fact is that Job isn't guilty of deliberate and willful sin. And it was unfair to characterize him as godless fruitless, forsaken. Remember what Job has said. I'm hurt. Is there any healing available? I feel like I'm bound. Is there any deliverance available? I feel like the crushing weight of judgment Is there any mercy available? Job wants an explanation for his pain, for his suffering. And I think most people want an explanation. Why am I here? What What am I doing? How do I explain my circumstances? And look at how Bildad ends his sermon in verse 20. Behold, God will not cast away the blameless, nor will he uphold the evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughing and your lips with rejoicing. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame and the dwelling place of the wicked will come to nothing. In effect, Bildad is saying, God won't cast away the blameless, but Job, you're still to blame. He will uphold the evildoers, but you have to confess that you're an evildoer. He'll fill your mouth with laughing, but you have to confess with that mouth that there's something terribly, horribly wrong with you. Admit your sins. Get right with God. Now, don't get me wrong. You've heard me say this to you. Admit your sins. Get right with God. It's the appropriate message if, in fact, you have sin and you need to get right with God. But it's not the right message for Job. H.L. Minkin said, for every complex problem, there's a solution that's simple, neat, and wrong. Yeah, don't you wish that life's most perplexing Problems would have such a simple solution. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the most complex problems in your life, you could always get the answer by just going to your local Chinese restaurant and opening up the fortune cookie and saying, Lord, whatever's inside of this cookie, it's going to reveal my future. Bildad offers an incredibly simple and naive answer to a very difficult and a very complex problem. 
And instead of answering the question about Job's suffering and circumstances, Bildad just simply brings more accusations, more blame to a man who's already bearing a load that's been designed to kill a normal human being. Have you ever said, I wish someone would speak to me who knows what they're talking about? You see, this is why Jesus was so refreshing in the New Testament. When people would hear Jesus speak, they would say, he doesn't talk like anyone I've ever met before. He says things that are so pure and so sweet and so lovely and so encouraging. Jesus is the great physician who heals our sickness. Who cleanses our hearts. Who provides for forgiveness. And Eliphaz and Bildad will show up and they're willing to offer themselves as counselors. But let's just be blunt here for a minute. Who is sufficient for such things? When someone comes to you and they say, please explain to me why I've just been diagnosed with cancer. Please explain to me why my daughter has this fatal illness. Please explain to me what's going on. Please explain to me why my husband has left me. Please explain to me how my relative died in the Aurora Theater massacre. Please explain to me. And the person says, I want to be a counselor. I want to help people. Is it wrong to want to help people? Of course not. Is it wrong to want to be a counselor? Of course not. Is it helpful to be a bad counselor? Let me just be blunt again. Can it be even harmful? I read this week of a pastor who preached a message this last Sunday. He preached his message And he went home, and he went into his neighbor's driveway, and he shot himself, and he died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. How do you explain that? How do you process that? Why in the world would you push the wisdom of men at the expense of the revelation of God in Christ? Why would you push superficial, subjective mysticism or personal experience in order to explain the circumstances of human life? Why would anyone want to substitute the revelation that God has given in the person of Jesus Christ in order to come up with a satisfying solution of the problems that we face and the circumstances that we face and and the resources that we need. Bad things can happen even when people have pure motives. You know what else is interesting? Dishonest and just peop, unjust people can sometimes prosper and honest and hardworking people can sometimes fall behind. 
And you know what's difficult? If we pretend even for a moment that we know the answer, why? Well, I can tell you why. By the way, when you say that, I can tell you why. Is it possible that you might have part of the answer? Possible. But is it also possible that you might be leaving something out? That you may have neglected or ignored or failed to take into consideration that there might be information that you don't have access to that if you did in fact have access to that information, it might cause you to come to a completely different conclusion. Again, we go back to the text. If Eliphaz and Bildad were able to read the first chapter of Job and understand what happened in heaven, do you think it would change their mind? I think it it should. If both Eliphaz and Bildad say, you know, God has spoken, and God says that, that Job is upright and pure and righteous, and there's nobody like him on the planet Earth, including you, Bildad, it would cause you to take things so totally different. Justice. Is God just? Yes. Is God merciful? Yes. Is it important to talk about God's justice? Yes. Is it helpful to talk about God's justice and refuse to talk about his mercy? Sometimes it's not helpful. Sometimes what you need to be able to do when people ask, hey, does God judge sin? Yeah. Does God hate sin? Yeah. Is there anything else to the story? Uh, Yeah. Here's the other part. He loves sinners. He's merciful and kind and gracious. He has made a mechanism where you can taste grace, where you can experience love and mercy and forgiveness and hope because a real Jesus really died. He suffered judgment and experienced justice. So that you could experience mercy and grace. This is Bildad's first speech. When we come to chapter 9, Job will respond. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we look at this passage and as we think about what we're reading... Lord, it makes perfect sense to me that each and every one of us knows that someone will come to us one day in pain and hurt, looking for hope, looking for comfort. Lord, we understand that most people aren't looking for judgment and they're not looking for condemnation. Lord, we pray that we would be able to present to them Jesus. That we would point them to a Jesus who is both just and a justifier. A person who will deal with the problem of sin. And even more importantly, save, redeem, 
rescue, release, forgive the sinner. And again, Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.